Democracy, a podcast dedicated to promoting, assisting, and empowering youth-led grassroots organizations and the policy agendas and candidates they champion. I'm your host, David Cromwell. After the 2016 election, some in the media were suggesting the imminent death of American democracy. But the young people in America had other ideas. Not only did they turn out in unprecedented numbers for the 2018 midterm elections, they have also emerged at the forefront of what is arguably the largest grassroots movement for change since the 1960s, with gun control, climate change, social justice, and many other issues on their minds, America's youth are reinvigorating our democracy and inspiring us all to take action ourselves, and we all have a moral obligation to help them as the movement they've built continues on. Our first guest on this program is Felix Brody. Felix is a junior in high school and the lead field organizer and strategist for the March for Our Lives Boston chapter. He was also a co-founder of 50 Miles More Massachusetts, which helped organize a 50-mile march from Worcester to the headquarters of firearms manufacturer Smith & Wesson. Felix has also played a pivotal role in the fight to lower the voting age in Massachusetts from 18 to 16. We discussed these issues and several others with Felix. Felix Brody, thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on the program. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's excited to be part of the first episode. Oh, it's exciting to have you as part of our first of what will hopefully be many, many episodes to come uh, in the near future. And uh, let's start out with a recent project of yours. Uh, just a week or so ago, you and several other uh, young activists in Massachusetts were at the state capitol to lobby Massachusetts legislators to pass the Empower Act, which intends to allow 16-year-olds like yourself uh, to vote in local and municipal elections. While this is a great step forward, many in America myself included, are eager to see 16-year-olds to be allowed to vote in all elections. Is this the eventual goal of the Vote 16 movement? And if so, what's the plan going forward to achieve it? I mean, sure, it's definitely a goal. Um, and sort of this is uncharted territory for America. We we haven't had 16-year-olds vote. Um, up until a little while ago, we hadn't had 18-year-olds vote. So uh, sort of the reaction um of of a lot of people has been sort of hesitant and i think that having 16 year olds being able to vote in municipal elections first is going to be a great first step because we can look at all this local data and look at how 16 and 17 year olds have voted in municipal elections once we gain that right and then we can make a decision if we're talking about statewide voting privileges or or federal voting privileges oh that's a a very very good point and uh, I'm sure you're aware of uh, HR1, the Democrats' uh, legislation to uh, root out corruption and expand democracy by uh, eliminating gerrymandering, getting rid of uh, dark money and, and, and all that stuff that's plaguing our democracy right now. Uh, but do you think you will be lobbying those same U.S. House Democrats in the future to put similar language about 60-year-olds' voting rights into HR1 once the Democrats have unified control over Washington? I'm sure that, that that would be something where we'd be interested, right? Um, but right now, we're sort of focused on Massachusetts. Our group is Massachusetts-based. We're focused on sort of getting the ball rolling first. I'm I'm sure we'll have long discussions about whether or not that's something we're going to be wanting to introduce federally, but we don't know because we're just not there yet. 
Oh, that, that's a very, very good point. And as the say goes, uh, big fire starts small, so it's better to start local uh, to get a trend going. And uh, yeah. But pointing to the bigger picture, uh, when I listen to 16-year-olds and 15- and 14-year-olds uh, speak at these youth rallies all across America, it's hard not to tear, for me to tear up at what you guys say because you are articulating moral values better than almost any leader in the Republican Party that I just quit. And better than I could have articulated so far in my 30 plus years of life uh, thus far. So, uh, but when it comes to 16 year olds uh, being allowed to vote, uh, I wonder when I hear you speak, why can't they vote? I just don't see a reason why they shouldn't. So, uh, lay out a laundry list of details on why should 16 year olds be allowed to vote in local and municipal elections and at hopefully any election going forward. Uh, they, that's a perfect. Uh, that's a perfect question, and I think sort of a lot of the feedback or a lot of the people sort of hesitant to jump in uh, to jump on board to sixteen-year-old voting have said, "Well, your brain's not fully developed yet," or "Well, you can't serve in the military because military eighteen-year-olds be, being able to serve in the military is what helped lower the voting age uh, the last time it was lowered." But I, I think we have to sort of keep these things separate. And I think if you're talking about brain development, you can look at sort of hot cognition versus cold cognition. Cold cognition is something that psychologists and neurologists use to describe the decision-making processes under sort of calm scenarios where it's not a lot of pressure. It's not a quick decision. It's not sort of a reaction that you have to make. Um, and by 16, that's developed at the same, and at the same rate in 16-year-olds than it is at 18-year-olds. I think if we look at sort of the science, it tells us the processes that are needed to vote are developed at 16. And then we can talk about the responsibilities that 16-year-olds have, especially in their own local communities. Um, and I know for myself, I'm 16, I drive a car, I work, I pay taxes, and I can't decide where that tax money goes to. I know where I stand on the issues. I'm involved in my community. 16 and 17-year-olds volunteer at double the rate of any other age group in the United States, and yet we still don't have a voice in our communities. I go to school every day. I am extremely qualified to say what goes on in my school, and I know what improvements need to be make need to be made. And I can't vote who represents my district on the on the uh, school board. It's it's very simple to me. It's we are active. Sixteen and seventeen year olds are active members of our community. We are treated as adults. We're given responsibilities as adults. We pay taxes as adults, but we're not given the right to vote as adults. You just uh, laid out the case very perfectly there, my friend. And uh, as I uh, alluded to in the intro, you, uh, as the lead field organizer for March for Our Lives Boston, and as the co-founder of uh, 50 Miles More Massachusetts, uh, organized a 50-mile march from Worcester to the headquarters of Smith & Wesson, the uh, infamous gun manufacturer. I seriously have never heard of such powerful demonstrations and good trouble being led by young people since the, since the lunch counter sit-ins during the Civil Rights Movement. Describe what that experience was like, how many days did the march take, and whether you think you achieved any success in convincing Smith & Wesson to be a voice of reason in the fight for gun control. I mean, um, sort of, it's an honor to be compared to such movements. I wouldn't compare our movement to that. I think it's honestly a, a bunch of young people fed up with the way that Smith & Wesson is operating. They're a huge part of the economy in Springfield. 
and the goal is not to kick Smith and Wesson out, but the goal, but Smith and Wesson has inhumane practices. They're selling guns and they don't know where they're going. Uh, and that needs to stop. And so we were fed up with that. We were talking to sort of friends in Wisconsin who organized their own 50 mile March to Paul Ryan's hometown. And we thought this would be a great idea to sort of flip the script on Smith and Wesson and call them out for their inhumane practices. So it was five months of preparation and planning uh, by youth across Massachusetts, um, sort of a team effort and everyone sort of organizing the itty bitty aspects of the march from sort of exactly which turns we take on which road to how much food we were going to need and fundraising. And then the march itself was, it was honestly an amazing experience. It was tiring. It was brutal. It was uphill both ways. Um, but it was fantastic. It was a bunch of young people who all bonded together, who all worked together, who all pushed each other to go an extra mile, who walked silently through a town because the police told us we had to be silent. Otherwise, uh, counter protesters would be looking for us. And they were sort of, they advised us not to march, but we said, look, no, this is, this is bigger than us. Um, and so we marched through that town silently. It, It was it was a fantastic experience, and, and I think it achieved exactly what we wanted it to achieve. It called out Smith & Wesson. We had national and international news pointing the finger at Smith & Wesson, looking at them more closely for the practices that they had. Um, and I think you can see the effects that are, are still happening today, even though the, the march was in last year. Um, you have more and more shareholders demanding Smith & Wesson be accountable. You have more groups buying stock in Smith & Wesson that are that are saying, look, we're going to buy stock and we're going to make you change your practices. What you're doing is not right. You can't be making these weapons that are illegal in Massachusetts. You can't be making AR-15s that are being used in massacres across Mass- and across the United States and Parkland and Aurora and all these tragedies. You can't be making these weapons that are illegal in Massachusetts and then just shipping them outside of Massachusetts so they can be used for mass murder. Uh, and you mentioned uh, Smith & Wesson has inhumane practices. Uh, describe those inhumane practices in more detail if you can. Yeah, I mean, the big thing for us was just they're not responsible. They don't, under, they don't know where their weapons are going, and that's the big thing. It's, there's all this regulation, and they comply with the regulation up until the minute that they, that they don't have to. Um, so they're not allowed to sell assault weapons in Massachusetts, but they're still manufacturing them here in our state where we say assault weapons are bad. They're, they're horrible. The, the, the destruction they cause should not be in civilian hands. Um, and then they go and they make them and then they just ship them off into other communities. And then when they're going to states like Vermont and New Hampshire and Maine, they're coming back down into Massachusetts and killing our citizens. Um, and we're fed up with that. Honestly, we're fed up with them selling sort of crates of guns and then just selling them to a, a retailer. And they did, they don't know who that retailer is. They don't know. They don't know who that retailer is selling their guns to. They don't know the practice of the retailers. And, and to be frankly, to be frank with you, they don't care. Um, and, and that was a huge problem for us. And that's why we, that's why we decided to march. Yeah, and uh, speaking of that march, another uh, big headline of that march is that you were joined by one of the originators of this uh, 
national, if not worldwide, movement uh, for gun control and other forms of change. Uh, David Hogg, the uh, outspoken uh, survivor of the uh, Stoneman Douglas massacre. And uh, how did it feel to have him on board with you in solidarity and in person? I mean, it was great. We've, we've always had a great relationship with David uh, and we've always had his support. It, it was great to have him there. I think uh, he sort of, he sort of experienced Massachusetts a little more. I know now he's going to Harvard, um, but I think he's, it was great to have him there. It was great to have his voice, to have his leadership, to have his experience. I think we all learned from him and I think he learned from us. Um, and I think for all of us in this movement, I think we have to always remind ourselves that we're all in it together. We are all in this together indeed. And before we go out to the next question, let me remind our listeners here that David Hogg will be appearing at my alma mater, Nutrier High School, on Wednesday evening, February 20th at 6.30 p.m., the Nutrier High School uh, Northfield campus to be specific. He will be one of three panelists in a forum discussing how to combat violence uh, in your community. And the one of the sponsors of the event is the Illinois Holocaust Memorial Museum. So... Uh, so buy your tickets and make an additional donation to the Illinois Holocaust Museum uh, if you can. It'll be a fantastic opportunity to learn from one of the great young patriots in America on how to change America for the better and get our country back to being the nation we all believed it had the potential to be. And uh, this week, large part, it thanks to people like you, the United States House Judiciary Committee, obviously now under Democratic control, will be holding the first hearing on the gun violence epidemic in eight years. And front and center in that hearing will likely be H.R. 8, the universal background checks legislation that you and everybody else at March for Our Lives is fighting so, so hard to pass. Do you think there is anything currently not in this bill that should be in the bill? In H.R. 8? Yes. I mean, there are a whole bunch of uh, reforms that we could talk about, but I think H.R. 8 is a, is a fantastic first step. There are obviously a lot of smart people in the House, um, and they all got together on this issue, and, and universal background checks are the first step. It's We have background checks for firearm purchases, and then we have a whole bunch of loopholes. We can get into the specifics, but I don't think, I don't think we all need to hear that. What I think we need to hear is that no matter what, you cannot buy a gun without having a background check. We have criminals who have committed violent crimes in the past that are getting guns without a background check. Anyone that opposes this is, is, is not thinking straight. Like, you either have special interests or you don't care if guns get in the hands of people that we don't want them in the hands of. And I think it's sort of, for the NRA, it's, they don't particularly care. You know why? Because if criminals get more guns, there's, there's more violence, and then they can sell their message better. It's it's sick. It's sick what they're doing. But uh, I'm I'm really excited about HR8, and I think it's going to sort of stop this stop this cycle of the NRA completely controlling uh, the United States government. Oh, and especially since the NRA is really led by somebody named Vladimir Putin right now, that is long, long overdue and a must, not just for combating gun control, but for um, uh, pr- but for defending our democracy from the corruption of Vladimir Putin. And I can't stress that enough. Yeah. Yeah, I'm uh, glad you're with me there. And uh, in my home state of Illinois right now, 
the legislature is debating a bill known as the Firearm Owners Identification Card Act, uh, HB 0888. And uh, this bill is designed to require police to, and I quote, conduct a search of the purchaser's social media accounts available to the public to determine if there is any information that would disqualify the person from obtaining or require revocation of a currently valid firearm owner's identification card, unquote. And the bill would also require anyone applying for a firearm owner's identification card to turn over a list of every social media account to their local police. And when I first read this, I thought about Robert Bowers, the Tree of Life synagogue killer. If Pennsylvania had such a law on the books, Bowers wouldn't have been allowed to get a gun because he posted anti-Semitic filth days, if not weeks, before the massacre on his social media accounts, and his desire to kill Jews was made abundantly clear in several of those posts, and this uh, uh, piece of legislation kind of adds an extra dimension to me, given my Jewish heritage, and uh, do you think such provision must make it into HRA before it eventually passes? Um, I, I don't. I don't particularly know. Uh, I, I'd have to take specific look at that language. I think that the the bill proposed in the way that you just described it to me sounds like a perfectly fine bill. Uh, I'd have to take some more look at the language to say for sure, but I don't think that it should be included in HRA. I think HRA is perfectly clear on what it needs to do. It needs to establish background checks. I don't think we can sort of throw everything we need at once into this bill. I think we need to sort of have a middle ground for all Americans to come and say, look, we support this bill. Background checks of 90, 97%, from 90 to 97% if you're looking at different polls. But I, it's a majority of Americans. You can't get the same number of Americans to agree whether or not the earth is round. Um, so I think this, we have to just look at this as background checks. Um, and once we get that passed, we can sort of continue the conversation. But I, I think we got we, we to gotta sort of understand what we have right now and and not count our chickens before the eggs hatch. Oh, that is a very, very good point, especially given these uh, tribalized times. I often uh, say to people that I think this is the biggest test for American democracy since the Civil War, dare I say. And in order for us to start healing, we have to pass something that we could all agree on, and that is universal background checks for gun purchases, and I completely agree uh, with that approach. But uh, speaking of uh, where we go from after H.R. 8, what material that is not in H.R. 8 should be the main part of another piece of gun control legislation going forward? I'd take a look at assault weapons bans. Um, I think that's a, that's another great step. I think we had one. It was successful in the 90s and the early 2000s. And then it, and then it stopped. It didn't get renewed. Uh, and then we had a whole slew of, of mass shootings again. Um, and if we look at assault weapons bans and sort of demilitarizing our streets, that's a huge part of it. Um, I think we need to sort of also take a look at how gun manufacturer how gun manufacturers have a stronghold uh, both on the laws that we have and the practices that we allow them to have, um, and sort of reconsider our approach to that. I think there are a whole lot of things that we can look at. Extreme risk protective orders. Uh, there's there's a whole slew of of reforms that we can look at. But I'd, I'd just like to stress again, work on HRA. If you think the work is done, work harder. Um, as Congress, there's there's no safe bet in Congress. We have to push. We have to get this through the House. We have to push. We have to get it through the Senate. Um, and then, you know, get it to the president's desk and, and force action. 
Yes, we have to do everything we can to force uh, Senate Republicans to get behind uh, this bill or risk losing re-election in 2020, 2022, or whatever their term uh, ends indeed. HR8 should be our number one target right now uh, indeed. And uh, moving on to another topic, the uh, 2020 presidential election. You live in Massachusetts and your senior United States Senator, Elizabeth Warren, is one of the uh, top candidates for the Democratic nomination and she is going to officially announce that she is running for president uh, in, in just a couple days uh, next Saturday to be exact and you have gotten the chance to meet with Senator Warren numerous times and based on your experiences with her what kind of person is Senator Warren and is there a side to her personality that you have come to know that the mainstream media ignores? I mean I think Senator Warren in the past has been a great supporter of the of the young people um, I think young people across the country on all issues are demanding action from presidential candidates. And I think you're seeing some action from presidential candidates, whether or not it's gun reform, whether or not it's sort of climate change and addressing that and signing on to a Green New Deal. Um, but I, I think it's been great to talk to Senator Warren. I think all senators, all Congress people need to have youth councils. They need to actively discuss what issues are important to the youth, uh, especially because they're disconnected from the youth. They haven't been in high school in 30 years. It's just to 60 years, to 70 years. I haven't been in high school for decades. Um, and you need to talk to high schoolers because they're experiencing daily problems in their community that, that, that they're just, that are disconnected with Congress. I also think, um, that all presidential candidates should sign, uh, a pledge to not take any corporate money. I think we need dark, dark money out of politics. I think most young people think that, um, I just think that it's been great to know Senator Warren. Um, I wish her the best of luck. I think there are a lot of great candidates out there. I'd like to see the Democratic nominee challenge President Trump on sort of the practices that he's had, um, sort of with corporate money, special interests, talking about the NRA, talking about climate change, talking about all these important things that are issues to young people. They're issues to all people in America. Um, so that's, that's what I'm excited to see out of a Democratic candidate. Oh, yes. And, uh, you bring up a good point there. And another thing that obviously strikes me about Senator Ward is that she is uh, the candidate in this race, not named Bernie Sanders, that is committed to addressing the widening income gap. And uh, many political scientists say that widening income gaps make societies vulnerable to demagogues. And uh, and the Democratic nominee and hopefully the next uh, Democratic president has to focus on this issue um, uh, like a laser beam in order to make sure that we don't uh, come apart at the seams. Don't you think so? I agree. I think, especially if I'm looking at my community and, and looking at communities across America, the point of America is that everyone should have a fair chance. Right now in America, based on where you're born, based on what type of family you're born into, it completely ruins your chance at sort of a better life. Uh, and, and that's not what we are. I think we sort of have a strict social class system where it's really hard for people to move up. And we have these three or four or five or six stories of people that came from, from bad backgrounds and they work towards the American dream. But to be frank with you, it's only available to some people. It's available to people like me who are, who are born into sort of financially secure homes and that are born into, into white skin. Uh, and, and that's unacceptable. I think we need to have, we need to take a long, hard look at the way all Americans have opportunities in, in this country. And we need to take a look and make sure that they do have 
the opportunities that everyone that, that everyone else has that they have with their neighbors that they have with people living in the same city that they have with people living in the same state everyone should have an equal opportunity to succeed in life uh and that's not what we have in america right now oh absolutely not i often tweet about this uh culture of white privilege and male privilege that is has gripped our society for far too long and has recently shown some signs of abating but uh the uh, trump base uh, are people that want to keep that culture and that's one of the reasons why we got trump in the first place and one of the things that i really admire about uh, you and your fellow activists and march for our lives and similar organizations is that you are hell-bent on dismantling this culture of white privilege and male privilege. Uh, so people in uh, minority communities um, who uh, get shot up every single day get equal attention as a synagogue in Pittsburgh or a high school in Parkland, Florida. Thank you so much. I, I mean, we're working towards that. We're obviously not there yet. I think you can sort of look at shootings that occur in black and brown communities every day. And then you can look at Parkland and you see sort of days and weeks and months and years of coverage on Parkland. And doc, I know I've looked at a couple of documentary crews that have been talking about Parkland and I don't see any documentary crews that are going in black and brown communities. And I think we need to call sort of the media out on that and we need to promote, promote the narrative. And we can't just say, look, here's me talking about black and brown communities. We need to include people uh, from black and brown communities into the discussion. We need to, we need to sort of let them lead. And it's not, giving them the seat it's stopped it's stopped taking away from them which is what people in white communities have been doing for decades uh they're not people in black and brown communities are not powerless they have a lot of power uh the media is just ignoring their voices uh and i think we need to call on the media and i think people in privileged situations like myself need to take a step back um and that's why sort of when people ask me oh what, what are your plans in the in the future you want to run for office no, I don't want to run for office. There are too many white men in office. We don't need another white man in office. I think I know 100 people that are smarter than me. I know 100 people that are going to be smarter than me. In a year, I'm going to meet 100 more people that are going to be smarter than me. And I don't need to sort of take a seat at the table where I've already had a seat at the table for the longest time. Um, and, and sort of that's where I stand on this issue. Oh, my God, Felix. Amen to everything you just said. Uh, like, like one of the big things that I believe we have lost or we are losing under this president is our common humanity. And it is this common humanity that is instrumental in holding a liberal democracy together. And if that common humanity disappears, the democracy disappears. And what I love so much about what organizations like March for Life do is that you are some of the most inclusive people, including people of all faiths, all colors, all creeds, and leadership positions. It's just a, a beautiful thing to see. It's honestly hard for me not to tear up at that. This is the country we are we are headed towards, being that we're going to supposed to be, and that we will eventually be if we just persist, man. I, I just can't say this enough, man. It's just so inspirational here. Uh, people like you say things like that thank you I, I really appreciate that and that's very touching um i think when we're talking about organizations like more tries boston we're trying to 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 build a community where everyone feels welcome but obviously we're not we're not there yet um and while we can sort of celebrate that a little bit we have to we have to stay focused we have to continue to say well we don't we, we can't just strive towards diversity we can't just sort of use diversity as a buzzword we have to strive to make a, a community where everyone feels welcome and sort of 
I'm part of that problem, and I have to focus every day on making sure that everyone feels welcome. I I'd sort of just right now, I'd like to give a shout out to everyone at March Rise Boston and everyone in my life uh, that sort of helped me realize this. Um, and while I'm, I'm definitely not even close to there yet, to sort of being in an environment where everyone feels welcome um, and, and sort of helping to foster that environment, I think I'm making strides. So I, I just like to thank all of my friends that have helped me realize my privilege. And I want to give a big shout out to you and everybody at March for Our Lives Boston and everybody in March for Our Lives chapters and similar organizations all around the country for inspiring me, this uh, early 30s uh, former Republican who uh, made me realize my true spiritual past and my values currently lie with this movement and where America is headed long term. And I couldn't uh, be more grateful to have your inspiration that helped me quit this uh, Republican party. I just, I just, it's another thing I can't stress enough. Forgive me. I'm uh, getting a little too emotional on this uh, debut episode of you saving democracy, but uh, heck uh, that's why I'm inspired to to, to do this podcast is to get your message out and to make sure this movement keeps uh, chugging along faster and stronger than ever. (laughs) Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And if, if we just have a little more time, I'd just like to talk about sort of Democrats versus Republicans. And, and for me, it's not about that. This is an issue of morality. Um, and I think you can have sort of different ideological positions in the world um, and you can still be moral and right and still move things through Congress. And, and that's been shown. We've had that in the past. We've had we've had Democrats and Republicans coming to the table for decades um, together and progress. And I think in the past eight to 10 years, that's stopped. We have a gridlock in Congress right now because one party controls one one, uh, chamber and the other controls the other. I think that's ridiculous. There are American lives being lost every day to a multitude of issues. Our future is at risk. Um, And we're not listening to young people. There are a whole bunch of things we're doing wrong. Um, And that needs to end by both parties sucking it up and they have to come to the table with each other. Um, I think the house leadership right now with speaker Pelosi has done a great job of that. I think we need to have Republicans come to the table and I think we need to hold Democrats accountable too. Um, I just bipartisanship is is important today, especially because we have Democrats and Republicans controlling both parties. Uh, I mean, both chambers, there's a, sort of Democrats control the House and Senate, and the Senate's controlled by Republicans. Um, so, I mean, I cannot stress how important working across divides is. Um, and I think we need to sort of take a hard look at both the Democratic and Republican parties and say, what does our leadership need to look like? Um, and, and I think that needs to be taken from both sides. I agree there once again, Felix. And uh, two more questions before uh, we let you go here. Uh, aside from gun control and lowering the voting age to 16, what is the other major issue young people should be taking the lead on in this country? I can't say that there's one. I think young people are are not just like should take the lead. They have been taking the lead. I think you can look at the Sunrise Movement and what they're doing across America right now. To, uh, a couple months ago, no one had heard of the Green New Deal. No one thought it was possible. No one uh, had even thought of it. And now we have Democratic, I mean, we have front runners in the presidential, in the, in the presidential election that are committed to supporting a Green New Deal. We have 
Senate and and House members supporting it and co-sponsoring and and doing all these great things. Um, and I think that just shows the power of the young people. Uh, the the gun reform debate has been pushed miles by young people, and has pushed been pushed miles more. And in 2018, I think if you just sort of look at that, it's all issues are affecting young people. All issues are going to affect young people for a long time. They're going to be on this earth for a long time. And you got to start listening to their voices. Amen. And also, in large part, we have to thank uh, my one of my new heroes in Congress, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, for the Green New Deal. And she is only a couple years younger than I am. So this is a collective uh, revolution combined of uh, uh, millennials and uh, Generation Z, whatever labels uh, you want to give them. I honestly think this has the potential to be the next greatest generation in American history. I uh I, I just strongly, strongly, strongly believe that, Felix. And thank you so much once again for your time today. Uh, you're just an inspiration to listen to. And uh, another thing that you and I have in common, we're both big NFL fans. My previous podcast, Sports Crunch, uh, was exclusively an NFL podcast, but I decided that I had more important things to talk about and cover on this platform, so that's why we uh, created Youth Saving Democracy uh, instead. But uh, your beloved New England Patriots are in another Super Bowl, and I just wanted to hear your prediction for tomorrow's game <laughs> I think it's going to be a beatdown I think Pat's by at least 14 I am in agreement with you there or as I told my previous partner uh, on my previous podcast uh, we are simpatico there I believe the Patriots are long overdue to win a Super Bowl by multiple scores I think they beat the Rams 37 to 23 and heck the Rams shouldn't even be in the Super Bowl the Saints got hosed that's all I can say and Felix Brody Thank you so much for your time today. And if you want more information on what Felix is doing, you can follow uh, March for Our Lives Boston at MFOL Boston on Twitter. And you can follow 50 Miles More Massachusetts. Uh, what's the Twitter handle for that again, Felix? Uh, I think it's 50 More Mass. Yes, at 50 More Mass. And you can also follow Felix on Twitter at Felix underscore Brody. Felix Brody. Thank you very much. I definitely hope this is it's the only time that, that we talk, and I definitely hope to get a chance to work with you down the road to, dare I say, make America beautiful again. Perfectly said. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you very much again, Felix. And that's it for the first ever episode of Youth Saving Democracy. But we plan to be back with our next episode as soon as possible. For further updates on the development of this podcast, please follow me on Twitter at dcromelo, that is K-R-O-M, as in Michael, E-L-O-W, 17, and on Instagram at Youth Saving Democracy. For Felix Brody, our producer Chris Broadhead, this is David Cromelo saying so long, and sooner rather than later, the young people will win, and win bigly.